Maybe I should do Joe Biden fashion for this episode. Just be like, hey. So when I when <laughs> I do Joe Biden glasses. Yeah. When I <laughs> Listen when I point at the screen, I was this close to actually going to get them. When I point when I Joe Boy Joe Boyden Joe Biden point at you guys. Joe Boyden. It's um, your boy, Joe. <laughs> it's your boy. Oh gosh. Hello and welcome to our fourth episode of The World in Perspective. My name is Cameron Vasquez. I'm the editor-in-chief of The International Scholar and your host today. Joining me from Bon Jovi's private residence, no, she's in Bonn, Germany, <laughs> which sounds way too close, um, is Melissa Ballard. Uh, Melissa is a program assistant, no, research assistant with the U.S. Foreign Policy Program. Um, also from the, U- the U.S. Foreign Policy Program in his special military bunker, which looks like a house in Connecticut and in some undisclosed location, um, <laughs> is Liam Kraft. Uh, joining us once again from somewhere in what I, I suppose you would generously describe as the center of Massachusetts, um, <laughs> as Massachusetts is so small, is Diana Roy. Uh, Diana is our uh, is an editor and an executive assistant at ITS, joining us from uh, you know somewhere in the DMV area <laughs> as well. We also have Lucas Lehman and Kemi Alawode, um in editorial assistant in editorial division, and then a uh, program associate with the MENA program. Hi guys! Hey, how are you guys doing? That was a lot of words <laughs> to say for all of you. <laughs> That's a lot. We've packed them in on this podcast. Okay, uh, <laughs> we're <laughs> okay. We're recording uh, today on January the nineteenth. That date is especially important today because Biden is inaugurated tomorrow and Trump leaves the White House. It could be no, not more fitting that we are then also talking about the future of U.S. foreign policy on the podcast today. Long story short, the Trump administration has been really bad for America's reputational damage. And I think we can, you know, sort of reputation around the world. I think we could all agree on that. But what does that mean for the Biden administration coming in? Because across a lot of these different regions, there's this big sigh of relief. There's a probably an overwhelming temptation to kind of view Biden as the return of the America that uh, the world once knew under, you know, Obama and Bush and Clinton. Is this going to be sort of pick up where we left off or... You know, what kind of hurdles are we going to really overcome or need to overcome? Yeah, I think that that the temptation is to think that. I mean, it does make sense. You see a lot of the same people coming back to the Biden administration. Uh, I mean, some of these people worked with Biden previously. Um, so that makes complete sense. Um, but I do think that people w- will be pretty surprised that uh, when Biden shows kind of a different tack or a different route, you know, he, 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 I think, has stronger opinions and he's a lot more determined than some people give him credit for. Uh, you know, that goes as far back as his early years in the in the Senate uh, in the 70s. Um, and I think he's also going to be a lot more like, I'm not sure charismatic is the right word, but he has a lot of relationships all over the world. And I read an article the other day where the, the key part of Biden's foreign policy is going to be about relationships. And this is something Biden has been cultivating for 50 years and Obama 
simply didn't have that coming in, and he leaned into uh, he leaned into Biden for that. So I think there's going to be a lot more behind the scenes relationship, um, behind the scenes leaning on relationships to kind of get things done, and and. I think people might be surprised, even if things on the surface look kind of like Obama-like. I mean, it's a different world now. There's different issues. It's going to be a lot more focused on climate change, cybersecurity. You've got uh, new issues. You've got some old issues as well. But I think that Biden's team will probably take a different tack on it because if they're still around now, they obviously weren't taking the right direction with it under Obama. So I think people will be surprised. It'll be a pretty different direction. Um, in terms of resetting uh, relationships, there are a few things um, for the transatlantic relationship that the Biden administration can do pretty quickly that would take a lot of pressure, a lot of tension, and restore America's standing, um, at least you know, quite substantially, pretty immediately. Uh, and that would be to you know remove any existing sanctions, uh, tariffs on European goods, uh, make sure that there are no sanctions currently affect on the companies that were affected by the, um, this is back in last fall, the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, that round of sanctions, making sure those companies that are working to complete those projects um, and those natural gas uh, pipelines are no longer affected there. Um, but I think there are some things that the Biden administration will definitely maintain and how successful they will be in pushing Europe towards um, uh joining its uh, the U.S.'s coalition um, to address China on a number of issues. And one of the big ones I think there is, um, is data. Looking at the uh, what the U.S. has done in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, preventing uh, specifically Huawei from building 5G networks all around the world. Um, the U.S. was pretty effective over the, uh, over the last four years in um, convincing foreign leaders that they don't want Huawei building their 5G networks. In similar issues in the future, um, I think it's, uh, it's you know a question the Biden administration will have to deal with about how they will um, convince um, you know Europe European leaders leaders around the world to take their uh, side on these data governance issues. This is something that you kind of hinted at in a piece that you just published. We just got out, you know, published today, Liam. Um, you mentioned a lot sort of the need for the United States to adopt, I wouldn't say a more conciliatory policy, but perhaps I would say maybe, you know, a little bit more of a humble approach towards its allies, right? This is definitely a moment where the United States, I mean, I jump in if you think this is malarkey, right? <laughs> We're all going to be using that term for the rest of the rest of Biden's tenure in office. But um, don't you think this is maybe a moment for the United States to come back sort of in a, a slightly more humble sense um, to its allies? Or is that, you know, is that undermining our credibility? Or is it really reinforcing our credibility, you know, demonstrating a kind of moment of reconciliation, uh, reckoning with the way in which the United States has behaved over the last four years? I don't think, you know, in my own personal view, that the United States can credibly wake up tomorrow morning um, expecting that they can kind of walk back into the room and lead again. Uh, I think we get laughed out of that room in that event, right? This is a kind of moment, perhaps, like Melissa was saying, maybe we, we have to leverage those relationships more. Or is this maybe a moment where we still strike? You know, where, where do you find the balance there? Where do you strike the balance between retaining a, a just sense of pride, if you will, but also, you know, approaching allies with some humility? 
I think you also mentioned earlier reputational damage, Cameron, and I think that that ties into this a lot. And I guess my thinking would be we should be specific about what kind, which types of reputational damage, because I think what happened on January 6th does clear reputational damage to how American democracy is viewed and certainly impacts kind of how, you know, autocrats around the world can kind of point to point to that and say, do you, you don't want a system like that, do you? But if it's like, if it's the reputation on something like, say, mobilizing, uh, mo- mobilizing investment into vaccine, you know, development or something like that, then I think, I think there are, there are areas where the U.S. can still be confident. But I think I agree with your, your main premise, which is basically that we can't just act like that nothing happened. And, that there wasn't this huge period that really uprooted um, some of the kind of longer, you know, longer running currents um, in U.S. foreign policy that on which other, you know, countries around the world kind of relied in some respects. I think we're definitely going to see, um, especially this first year of the new administration, it's definitely going to be a long period of just attempts at reconciliation in some regards um and i think it's also the the amount of damage that the um trump administration was responsible for in terms of our uh overseas allies um and in terms of those multilateral relationships as well um that will definitely be something to not necessarily try and ignore so it i it, i don't think this will be uh i don't think the best way to try and get ourselves back into the meeting room um and at least in a respectable way is to try and say let's just ignore the last four years and just this is a new administration because the thing about having um a system of having uh, president every four or eight years is that other countries have to deal with a new set of policies and new mindsets every once in a while and they can't just ignore the history of the previous administration when going forward so I think the important thing is that we acknowledge what happened um, in the last four years but also acknowledge that we've been humbled in a way by it and at least let their countries know and let their leaders know that we will try and make amends for what the last four years have done rather than just try and wipe it all completely. I love what you just said there in terms of they can't just ignore like the history of the previous administration and I think when it comes to Biden in Latin America he simply cannot do that because the closeness that Trump had politically with a lot of populous leaning countries in Latin mm-hmm. America is not going to go away, you know, anytime soon. And in recent days, even with the Cienfuegos criminal case and just chilling economic relations, the relationship between the United States and Mexico specifically has really cooled and is kind of showing signs of long-term tension. And you have Brazil, who, where Bolsonaro is really his authoritative nature is he's really growing in terms of popularity. He's really pushing back against Biden. That is also going to be a big challenge for the Biden administration. Um, and while you do have a lot of Latin American countries that are excited for Biden, 
um, there's still going to be a lot of pushback, and I don't think that he will be able to make as much progress as he hopes as quickly as he hopes. And he recently announced, you know, Wednesday's first day in office, he's going to pass, for example, sweeping immigration reform. While that's something he's put as one of his top priorities alongside like health and economic relief, that is not going to happen anytime soon. And I look to the caravan of migrants from Honduras who are trying to cross um, through Mexico and get to the United States. Biden was like, don't try right now. Like, we're not going to be able to pass immigration reform that quickly. And, you know, at least he's focusing on that as a key pillar, something that Trump did, but in a more negative way. Um, He's still, I don't think, going to face, we're going to see as much progress as he hopes as quickly as he hopes. And that is something that people kind of have to come to terms terms with in that these things are not going to happen overnight. And while he's pushing for these positive oriented policies, you know, change like that, it just, after four years of, of what we've seen, especially towards Latin America under President Trump, Biden has a has a lot has a lot of ground to make up. I want to focus on something you said there. I mean, I've I've heard from everybody a lot of we can't sort of ignore this. It definitely has to be addressed. You know, there's there's ways to uh, sort of make amends for for all of the the sort of wanton damage to the relationships and um, sort of political wherewithal that's been lost. But uh, Melissa, when we are talking about you know approaching the world with humility and, and all of this kind of stuff. What do, what are we actually saying? You know, what's actually going to happen? How do you make amends? And you can use a specific example if you want. For example, how, how might, you know, Biden best work with, you know, Germany or work with uh, just the European Union in general? Our closest allies, it should be easiest sort of relationship to repair. But, um, you know, how, how does that actually happen in practice, right? How do you go about repairing um and sort of shoring up credibility for the united states after we've just witnessed the volatility of the u.s political system in extremis you know i think that in in any in the world is a big place so when biden makes overtures to try and make amends for something that trump did there's going to inevitably be people on the other side who will be upset at the making of amends so biden has said he wants to rejoin the Iranian nuclear deal. And for Iran, this is something that they probably also want um, so that they can have the sanctions lifted and, you know, so on. Uh, But then you have the Gulf countries who, on the other side of it, don't want to see this happen. You have Israel, who is also leery of this. Um, Then you have Lebanon. And, you know, Lebanon wants to see aid come its way. It's a struggling country right now. But again, Israel doesn't want that. So there's, there's this balance of what can Biden do that that will repair the biggest crises, the biggest damages at the moment? Um, and I think that's what he has to focus on more than than trying to kind of make amends all over the world for, for what Trump did, because, you know, there's a lot of fires right now. Uh, but I think what Biden can do that I think is really important is not necessarily going to make amends directly to the leaders of these countries, the presidents, the PMs. I think what he needs to be doing is making overtures to the publics, the the people within countries that have suffered under autocratic regimes. Um, in Brazil, you have activists who have been pushing for uh, tougher climate change um, policies. And, and I think what Biden will need more for the countries and the leaders who, you know, have you know, different agendas um, is one thing, but what he means for the people who are who are suffering under these, you know, regimes that Trump favored and, and didn't criticize, I think that that's a whole different 
topic. I think that for people suffering, Biden will mean a lot for them. And I think these are the people that uh, Biden will be able to reach more. So kind of talking about repairing U.S. soft power to the extent that it's still there. I mean, we kind of touched on this in a couple of the previous episodes as well when it came to, um, you know, talking about America and talking about the Capitol riots when we did our special episode. You know, what's what happens now in terms of how the United States approaches democracy promotion abroad, but also just generally. How is the United States viewed in the world now with this sort of massive grain of salt, if you will? So how do you go about repairing soft power, you know, for, for people like you were saying, Melissa, like the, the average person that's living in, you know, Barcelona in Spain or, you know, who's, you know, walking the streets in Nigeria somewhere. How do you shore up their their vision of what the United States stands for? Yeah, I think I think that only um, comes from serious internal reform, looking at how do we inc- increase people's uh, confidence in our electoral processes? Do does everyone know how does everyone know how the system works? I was really stunned at just how quickly conspiracy theories regarding voting machines and voting practices, and you know the stories about uh, sharpies in Arizona, how quickly that spiraled into what happened on January 6th. I mean, just that there was people were already primed, people were already upset at the, you know, government for a number of different reasons. There was, uh, you know, um, on the left, you know, people are have were in 2016 were upset at that uh, Hillary Clinton was managed to win the popular vote and lost the electoral college. You know, there's broad criticism of, you know, that process in, in itself. Um, but then uh, just the lack of trust that in our local uh, state government and our state governments in their ability to manage and run elections. I think so just I kind think of shoring to, up, yeah. you know, democratic reform at home is what you're saying. Like we need like this. Ultimately, right. the United States is going to keep embarrassing itself on the world stage unless we fix everything at home first is what you're saying yeah yeah to sum things up that's basically what i'm saying and we have to actually we have to make sure these um systems are well run that people are able to vote and not only that but everyone that making sure that everyone knows how these systems work that everyone knows this is how these votes are counted that we you know people can say with 100 percent confidence that the machines that count the ballots are going to do so properly um but yeah, increasing that public confidence, I think, is the tricky um, uh, question there, because everything could be running quickly. But if people don't believe that it is, then we're going to see similar events. So I'm hearing uh, the subtext behind everything that you're saying is I'm hearing we need democratic reform at home first, especially for these sort of glaring you know, sort of shortfallings of the system we currently have. And we definitely need re-emphasis on education, at least in terms of sort of civics and, uh, you know, how government actually works so that when it doesn't there's an understanding of why that might be is that a fair characterization or you know do you would you agree kemi and melissa i see a lot of interest in this particular aspect (laughs) yeah because um whether or not uh people are fine with it is um over overseas people pay a lot of attention to u.s politics and like domestic politics, not only how the U.S. is dealing with their country, but also how the U.S. is dealing with itself. Like when I was still studying in London, anytime anybody learned that I was American, 
um, they'd always ask me what I thought about the current administration. So, and like whatever is topical, whatever is going on. So um, definitely, if you're if you want to give um, like ordinary people abroad, if you want to give them confidence that the U.S. will be able to get itself back on its feet, you need to be able to set the example at home instead of just trying to push for like overseas or trying to push for any form of policy that would directly affect them. Because in some ways, there will be a lot of people who will be like, hang on, you, you can't do all this. It's too sudden. It's too soon. You can't just push yourself back into this international sphere that you've pulled yourself out of in many ways. Um, so doing things at home in many in some ways, educational reform, political education in general, just governmental reform, um, taking things like what we've seen on the 6th and how, with how quickly the FBI is cracking down and trying to find and arrest all of the people who actually managed to break in. I don't think they're going after people who were protesting like on the grounds of the Capitol, but anybody who made their way into the building. Those are the sort of things that people overseas are looking at and they're going, okay, the US is pulling itself back together slowly, but surely. So. Working domestically is a great way to at least set an example for what you plan to, the kind of presence and the kind of reputation you plan to show to others overseas as well. I totally agree with that. And I think I would also just add that in some ways there's a bit of an opportunity because a lot of democracies around the world are facing similar issues and that are kind of making it harder to function as democracies. I mean, tech, the internet, um, have, con you know, played a, played a, uh, contributing role in a lot of the democratic erosion that we've seen around the world in the last few years. And there's certainly unique aspects of the, the current, you know, problems in us democracy. I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's like, it's racial, you know, or, um, racism history and whatnot. That's, that's a unique, you know, U S issue. But I think, um, I think, like you said, if, if the U S can show that, you know, progress can be made in, in improving democracy in the 21st century, then I think that, um, will provide kind of inspiration and, and, you know, progress for other democracies around the world. I think it's the wrong time to double down on kind of an American exceptionalist sort of notion that, you know, where, you know, our constitution drafted in the 18th century is, you know, is all we need. You know, I, I, I agree, like, this is the time for to really consider those structural reforms that are needed. And I think through doing so, then, you know, we can actually um, show that democracy is messy, but it also works because people demand changes and it's a living kind of breathing process to make um to make you know the democracy work better yeah and then, you know i just want to add to that that um again with these transatlantic countries there there's i think 60 to 70 percent of people think that the american governmental system needs to be either massively reformed or completely overhauled and that's quite a large number obviously they don't think american democracy is working um so i think 
going back to Biden as, as a foreign policy um, leader, I think that you know he's said that he's going to call for a summit of democracies, and I think this is something that he needs to do not as necessarily the leader, but in acknowledging that you know there needs to be something better. We need to to fight against the retrenchment of of democracy, as the point that Liam brought up the the uh, rise of autocratic and authoritarian regimes. I mean, we haven't touched upon Russia. We've barely touched upon China, and, and you know, so I so I think it's not just about yeah, as you said, American exceptionalism. Is this the end of American exceptionalism in terms of its foreign policy presence, or are we sort of redefining American exceptionalism? I it's it's a that's a, t- <laughs> that's everybody's a tough one. nervous to talk about that. Um, but you know, it's really the question on the back of a lot of people's minds, I think, that are looking at this kind of question, you know, this, this, this area, you know, is this, how does, how does the United States kind of continue to claim it's exceptional when it's just showed itself to be, um, in many ways, just the same and just as plagued by traditional issues of governance and democracy as, uh, every other nation since the sort of wave of democratization that we saw throughout the 1800s and 1900s and you know how does the united states walk you know out of the frankly the dumpster fire um and claim to be you know just fine everything's working you know just like normal and you know i'm i'm still special um i mean i feel like the problems might have been exacerbated or that particular mindset that the U.S. is no longer exceptional has been exacerbated by the damage that the Trump administration has caused. But I don't think it started with the Trump administration. This is something that's been a process. Um, The U.S. basically showing itself and uh, implanting itself in different areas of the world and sort of failing to win over those states or win over those people. And in those gaps, states like Russia and China have been able to sort of come in and act as the U.S.'s challenger. And in many ways, they have succeeded. Um, they've managed to succeed. So, like, you'd see uh, Russia gain with their um Russia and Syria for one that was a big one where uh Russia backed uh the Syrian government and currently the Syrian government is still in control or fairly uh they've regained a bit more control over the state than they had in the past few years or like you'll see China with their multiple investments in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and they've sort of started uh, presenting themselves as like Africa's savior in the sense of sending millions and millions of aid um, in exchange for their presence in that region as well. So American exceptionalism, at least to the rest of the world, has sort of been dying for a little while. I guess this is just the first time the U.S. has sort of had to examine itself and seriously realize that. So I want to pivot to Diana and highlight something that you just said there, Kemi, and then we'll jump to Lucas as well. But I want to talk about, um, you know, the... the Biden's not just walking into a a maelstrom of damaged relationships. He's also walking into a very different world than the one that Obama left, you know, four years ago. Um, (laughs) I had to think about how long it was just there. (laughs) Um, 
you know, it's been all this time, you know, the world hasn't sort of stopped to watch America sort of spin off uh, in, in a thousand directions. Everything's been, you know, continued to change. And the, the era of great power competition is definitely back, right? You mentioned China is uh, expanding its influence. I think it's definitely different this time, right? It's been different every time that sort of there's been waves of major great power competition throughout the world. And I think today we're seeing a lot of sort of geoeconomic competition or, uh, you know, competition to own the space of connectivity. And so you to look, you know, between China and Europe, you know, looking at a an agreement um, over sort of cross cross regional investment um, and, and sort of how to build bridges between uh, you know, overland between Asia and Europe, and you're looking at uh, the development of the One Belt One Road uh, project through throughout the the entirety of Eurasia, the Middle East, and then even getting into the coast of Africa. At the same time, you're seeing Russia be a little bit more picky choosy about where it it directs its energies um, uh, and who it sort of decides to support. It's getting involved. Um, more so in Libya, and it's uh, sort of returning to the sphere of uh, Latin American politics and relationships. And for, I would, I think the really the first time China is definitely making significant strides in Latin America as well. So what kind of world, I mean, given what we just said about sort of the US can't really, I'm I'm throwing you the big curveball. How do you square that circle, right? How do you square approaching the world with some humility, maintaining some semblance of actual exceptionalism. What is the basis of that exceptionalism? And then how do you address great power politics all at the same time? That's a big challenge Indeed. for any incoming president. And I don't expect <laughs> you to have all the answers, but how, mm. how do we have to at least understand that framework? I would say in Latin America specifically, the United States and just Biden administration, Biden is, is, is dealing with a Latin America that four years ago, you know, did not real. it didn't resemble what it does now, right? So, so much has happened since he's last had to really deal with it as vice president. And so having to deal with, you know, everything that's going on internally within the United States, which is, as we've talked about, like a plethora of things and kind of the chaos that's going on internally, but also having to deal with how is the United States being perceived in these other regions that have also evolved, you know, over time. Um, and so I, Latin America specifically, I, as Kemi was talking about China's role in different areas around the world and how that has kind of put a strain on, um, you know, who is kind of leading in the international community. Um, and China's investment and involvement in Latin America specifically in the past few years has increased exponentially. And they're investing in um, hydrocarbon industries. And um, in Venezuela, they're investing in oil. And so is Russia, which is, again, another kind of competition that they're having. But they're investing in human um, information and services technologies in Brazil um, and Mexico manufacturing companies and e-commerce. And they're kind of in all these different areas of Latin America that Russia is always also trying to get in a little bit. And we or I view that as um, China's indication that they have a long-term interest in the region. So that is something that the United States should be looking at because we don't have the best relationship with China. And as that really, as our relationship with China kind of continues to be a little bit tumultuous, that is benefiting Latin American countries who are receiving that economic investment from China. And I look to Mexico where we don't have the best economic relationship with. It's kind of suffered a bit under the past four years in terms of the Trump administration kind of ignoring ties and, you know, 
festering issues, um, security and migration wise. And China's kind of capitalized on that opportunity to really invest long term. And AMLO is really looking to advance that relationship that he was not able to with Trump. And I don't think it's going to be easy for Biden to kind of address China's role in the region because in the past four years, we've kind of let our our stance erode and we've kind of left Latin America to kind of suffer on its own. And now that China has an increasing presence, we are like, well, now what do we do? If they have a long-term interest, how can we reassert ourselves in the region to really prove that we are invested in not only the growth and long-term progress of Latin American countries, but also just other issues like climate change. I look to Brazil where, you know, we are always preaching that we are so gung-ho climate change, but we're not even in the Paris Accord still. And you see Brazil who is kind of making a few advancements, but that is a place where there could be cross-collaboration. And that is also a place where China has a lot of investment. So how can we kind of work on these other areas besides economics, where China's kind of you know, ahead of the game in terms of our investment in the region. Right. So this is going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of um, internal reform and what the U.S.'s role will be in the world as um, we go through our own challenges here. Uh, There are definitely issues, faults in our democratic processes. I think if Biden wants to return um, America to the to be this place that other nations aspire to be in terms of where they are democratically, that will require a lot of, you know, internal democratic reform. The issue for Biden is that a lot of that reform has to happen at the state and local level. I think people around the world are becoming increasingly aware of the specific faults in our electoral processes are. They know that we suffer from gerrymandering. They know that we have these voter ID laws that prevent people from getting registered. They know, you know, even voting in Virginia, I was in um, I was in D.C. Uh, a month, bef- uh, a couple months before the election uh, took place. And I had to rush to make sure that I had a new driver's license because my old driver's license, you know, was not a Virginia driver's license. Um, so. You know, the, I think if Biden really wants to be a leader in foreign policy, I think he's also going to have to make a tremendous push at home to make different kinds of democratic reform. Another thing is that if nations, in the short term, if nations are no longer aspiring to be where we are democratically, if they're no longer to aspiring to, to make their political system, they're not trying to model theirs after ours, um, do we at least look better than the alternative? And are we present? Are we an available? Are we an available alternative? And uh, and that alternative being, um, are we there and trying to invest and engage with countries that China is right now? Are we saying, you know, you can either work with these partners? Is there something else available? You know, uh, in terms of, um, is there a U.S. option? Is there foreign aid? Is sort sort of sort of as as we slide down our shining hill, right. are we still at least? higher up than, you know, an authoritarian regime that looks more like uh, Russia or, you know, a sort of, st- you know, state run monopoly on politics right. like the the Chinese model. Right. As are we at least better than the alternative while we improve our division? So, I mean, trying to tie these two things together, you mentioned Diana and Lucas, you know, when we look at competing and cooperating on the international stage, um, which is something that I know Melissa and Liam, you know, in the U.S. foreign policy program for ITS, we're working 
a lot on looking at that. How do you cooperate and compete with the same power in the same region on, you know, closely related topics, right? On the one hand, you know, in Brazil, we'll be, um, you know, trying to push human rights, you know, encourage Brazil to to respect, you know, indigenous rights in the Amazon and, um, you know, try to encourage them not to cut down so much of the Amazon, of, you know, for, for both climate related reasons and, um, you know, those regarding indigenous rights, while at the same time, we have the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, happening across the United States where the police are responding uh, violently. Um, and we have, you know, our own, you know, challenges as the Trump administration, you know, essentially you know, gutted the the EPA and rolled back emission standards and all kinds of other issues. Um, so how do we score it? You know, how, how at once can we, can Biden or just the United States in the next, you know, 10, 20 years start to approach the, you know, competing and cooperating with China in different regions like Africa, where we're trying to promote democracy at the same time as we're having trouble with democracy or working with powers like Brazil on human rights and climate change at the same time as we have those same problems in a different form, perhaps, but we struggle at the same time. What's the tone? What's the rhetoric? How do we approach that issue? I think um, in terms of in terms of the tone to, to set, it, it certainly depends. But I think oftentimes the U.S. is very U.S. policymakers are very vocally skeptical um, sometimes for good reason, sometimes maybe for not as, as good reason, um, about kind of Chinese economic influence in various developing countries. And so I think, I think the tone that we should strike is one that says, look, China, the, you know, China is tackling one aspect of some of your political economy challenges and solutions, right? You know, they're, you know, they're, we can't match them on infrastructure, um, you know, we're not going to not going to match them dollar for dollar on building bridges and tunnels and airports and things like that right now. It's just not really um, where we're at economically. Um, but we can help um, with related aspects of some of those challenges. So, for example, like we can help advise, you know, for example, a lot of African countries or, or a lot of the reason why infrastructure is so of interest is. Um, in order to kind of promote greater intra-regional trade. And so what are other ways that we can help promote intra-African trade, for example, that maybe hit on the U.S.'s own strengths? So I think, um, and, and there's there's various ways of doing that, but I think, I think the, to me, the framing would be one where it's not necessarily direct cooperation with China, but it's recognizing the complementary strengths that we bring and that way we engage those countries more on their own terms rather than purely through the lens of, oh, we have to oppose every single thing that China does in every single region around the world. Um, that, that would be my recommendation. I was going to say that you could definitely stress the fact that, you know, as Liam said, while you can't compete on certain number of things, you could kind of stress cooperative partnerships on other issues. So, for example, in Brazil, you know, the United States under Biden is very much geared towards, you know, adopting a stronger stance on climate change, you know, efforts and, and really ramping those up. And in Brazil, when you had the Amazon burning and deforestation has increased um, in 2020 more than it has the year prior, that is a that is a topic that you could really build bilateral relations on. And while it won't be easy, it's kind of one of those other aspects. 
outside of the economy where you can really try and build at least a tentatively strong relationship with another country where China has a lot of investment. Or for example, with Mexico and migration related issues, that is, you know, Mexico does not want to be receiving all these Central American migrants as much as we do not want to be having to deal with the influx of them at the southern and southwest border, right? So really working with AMLO on migration related issues is another way in which while we don't have the best relationship with them right now, like with AMLO's government, we can really stress that cooperative, collaborative aspect of this issue that China doesn't necessarily have a say in and and really try and build that relationship from that point and then see, you know, what else comes up in the future. We could once we have this kind of limited foundation, what else can we do with that to kind of progress that relationship further? And and just to build on that real quick, um, I, I think we saw this a couple of times in the last year with, you know, Pompeo going to a country like Sri Lanka um, and, you know, railing on, on Chinese investment there and saying, you know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be working with the Chinese on, on this stuff. And, and I think that is, is clearly an unrealistic strategy because there's a lot of countries that just don't have the alter the financing alternatives. Exactly. And so you can't, you can't just go in and make unrealistic demands or, or hold unrealistic expectations of what you can get out of some of these countries that aren't, you know, necessarily like full on, you know, even with some of our allies, we've had difficulties aligning on every aspect of kind of a China, you know, China standpoint. Um, but yeah, you've got to be realistic and, and kind of take what you can get out of the relationship and recognize, you know, there's certain things that you're just not going to be able to, uh, not going to be able to realistically do, and it'll hurt the strategy if you try. Um, mm -hmm. So Melissa, I want to kind of close out this topic with you and then we'll kind of move on to as we run out of time in this podcast. But um, is there a scenario where, you know, you could see the United States going kind of directly to China and saying, hey, like, let's partner on development in this region or on this topic. You're going to, you know, you can cover these things, right? You know, we have some sort of joint project where you've got you've got the power of purse ready and willing. You don't have to go around to Congress, right? Um, not really. <laughs> um, and at the same time, we have this technical expertise that's important or val valuable that we can leverage in that relationship, right? To develop the project, to, um, you know, provide the, the financing instruments that are necessary um, to provide the, the political uh, relationships that, you know, with you know, countries that we are particularly closer with. Um, and then China also gains some of that foothold. But then we also have our foot in the door. We're also continuing that conversation. Um, there's a voice for issues of governance and democracy. Is that a scenario you could kind of see plausibly happening? Um, and if so, is that one that you think the Biden administration might take or not? Yeah, I think that Biden has shown that he has a fondness for multilateralism and di diplomacy and decoupling issues. I think that um, domestic politics and the Republican base won't let him be visibly easy on China, but I think that he can still choose to, like I said, decouple issues and say, hey, mo most obvious is, of course, the climate change issue. China is actually, you know, quite the leader in green technology innovation, so I think that he could definitely go to China and... and try to work on this specific issue while decoupling it from other very real issues they have with China. Um, the U.S. isn't going to pull out of um, Southeast Asia. They're not going to pull out of supporting militarily supporting 
certain countries in the region that are going to pull out trying to form a better economic tie with the countries. Um, but that, I mean, that's a separate issue, and I think that Biden's team is probably fully capable of doing that. Um, I think that it's going to be tougher on the economic front with China. I'm not sure that Biden will do much, at least right away, to kind of remove Trump's, not necessarily his trade war, but some of the tariffs he put in place. Um, I even hesitate in regards to how he's going to approach Europe with, with tariffs that Trump put in place. I think that he's going to be a little more conservative on trade than, than some people assume. Um, but I do think that, that decoupling is a real possibility that, that Biden can have. Because once you kind of stick your foot in it, um, it's hard to, to kind of pull it right back out again immediately without, um, you know, the, the negative repercussions that come with um, sort of picking a fight and then backing off um, as soon as there's a change in mm-hmm. political leadership. It, it yeah sends the wrong message. And, and just very, very quickly, because I know we're running out of time here to com- little switch directions a little bit. And as far as continuing Trump's like strategy and policies, there are some some areas in which Biden probably will most likely continue strategies or policies that Trump put in place. Uh, when you look at the the Indo Pacific framework that was um, released recently, uh, the public reaction was in general, well, this was actually not such a bad strategy. The problem is that Trump didn't necessarily follow it himself, and I think this is something we learned in the last four years. Is even if there was a strategy, Trump wouldn't follow it. Uh, there was actually a coherent strategy with Russia, for example, uh, but Trump wouldn't really follow the line that that both Democrats and Republicans kind of said. It was a very bipartisan consensus that they needed to be tough on Russia, and I think Biden will probably continue that. And I think that Russia is one country that he may find difficulties decoupling issues from because without without any kind of concessions from Russia, I doubt that any sanctions will be removed. And I think this is an issue that. Um, he can agree with, with most people in the U.S. and actually with many of his allies as well. That's an easy sort of win-win-win, yeah. except that there's there's no actual movement in policy. So that is all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you all for joining me. Uh, to my friends in uh, Bon Jovi, <laughs> <laughs> Germany, uh, in Bon, Germany, uh, and uh, in Connecticut, uh, in his uh, bunkered home, um, and in some undisclosed location in what is going to be referred to as the center of Massachusetts. Um, And from Lucas and Kemi in DC and myself in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to. It really helps us share the podcast with other audiences. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at the INTL Scholar and this particular podcast at TWI Perspective. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram um, and check out our website at theintlscholar.com. But for now, it's goodbye. Wait, I forgot my joke. Okay, Diana, share us, share with us your, your bad joke. I'm almost nervous to ask. <laughs> okay, which country has the fastest growing population? Ireland, because the population's always Dublin. <laughs> as soon as i saw that i was like this is my joke i'm claiming it that's funny incredible